I have been been in a, in a, in a meeting like this since uh, August 2016. After retirement, I took a position of uh, uh, visiting professor at Kent State University, but not in Kent, Ohio. They have a campus in Florence, Italy, which was really an experience. Surprised, I mean, even more surprised, shocked to find out that there are 142 U.S. institutions have a presence in Italy. Study abroad, campuses, courses, languages. It's really an amazing, you know, thing to, to, to know. So I, I, uh, I spent, I spent uh, five months, but the beauty of it, which is similar to what Pat offered me, they gave me a carte blanche to do whatever I wanted to do with that uh, course. The title, the books, the textbooks that I choose, the articles, which is really fascinating because nowadays it's very hard to, you know, introduce a course in a university or thing you have to go through so many steps and approval and stuff. And the title I chose for that course was Contemporary issues, contemporary issues in the Arab East, excluding the Palestinian-Israeli uh, uh, question or problem, because that topic needs not only one course; it needs many years to to, to cover it. And the uniqueness also about that course, maybe you can go and and, and take it one day, is that. I started from First World War and the promises that were given to all kinds of nationalities, the Arab, the Jews, the Kurds, the, the Turks, the Armenians, you know, and when the, when the war uh, finished, nothing came up, you know, for most of those people. And the problem started from there. And it's still with us. My, I told my students, I really wanted them to know when they go and watch the 6 o'clock news to know why this violence that we see now happened, why it is happening, because of what happened about 100 years ago and is still going on. And we focused on how these countries were uh, established, but more importantly, on the system of governments that they have, as well as the problems between them. Water problems, water problems, oil problems, and so on. So it, it was really a very unique course, and I don't think there is any course like it in any U.S. institution. Anyway, uh, now we come to this topic. Pat was kind enough to tell me the same. You choose whatever you, <laughs> you want to choose. And if you mm. notice, I chose this topic, the war of 203 and its unintended consequences for Iraq, the Middle East, and the United States. Maybe not hundreds, thousands of articles, editorials, speeches, discussions were written on the, not on the subject, on the war, why did it happen, the military aspect of it, the terrorism problem, but really nobody focused on the on the unintended consequences of this war on a large scale, not only for Iraq, because really what happened in 2003 was a, a very, very earthquake in the Middle East. And I will discuss it later, you know. Basically, why did this war happen, you know, at least from the official point of view. Basically, the United States wanted 
to disarm the regime of Saddam Hussein of weapons of mass destruction. They really thought or believed that Iraq was still having research and, and uh, developing nuclear weapons. So that was the reason given. The second reason was the fear that the regime of Saddam Hussein will pass, will provide these weapons of mass destruction to terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda or others. And it will be danger for not only the area but the, the whole world. Also another reason the U.S. and its allies wanted, at least that's what they said, to implement the United Nations resolution on disarming Iraq. After the 1991 war between the U.S. and, and Iraq, there was a Security Council resolution to disarm Iraq, basically, especially from nuclear weapons. But the, U, uh, the Iraq was trying to evade that, and until to the end, until the war started again in two or three, many people believed that Saddam Hussein was still was still hiding or, or, or developing nuclear weapons. Another stated reason or implied is wanted to spread democratic ideas into the Middle East. U.S. Yes. And they really thought that if the seeds of democracy are planted in Iraq, it would maybe spread and influence the whole, the whole area. And there is a statement, I don't know if you have heard it or, or read it, that democracies don't fight among themselves. You know. So that what these are the reasons. I am sure, I am sure there are some other hidden reasons, not stated, but I will leave it, you know, for others to, to, to focus on. Now, the war started in March uh, 2003, and within one month, I think, one month and 40 days, the U.S. Army was occupying Baghdad, and the regime of Saddam Hussein collapsed. I'm sure you have seen it many times on, on CNN. President Bush said, mission accomplished. Yes, that particular mission was accomplished. But other things developed. Because the event itself, personally, I compared, uh, compared that event the major issues that happened in that part of the world. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War, the rise of the Arab states, and other big items, you know. But this one, the war again in two or three, was really a turning point for Iraq, the area and, and beyond because it is still with us now. That what happened in two or three, we are in 2019 now, 16 years past, and the ramifications are still with us. In my analysis, the first unintended consequences of this war was the rise of Kurdish nationalism, the rise of Kurdish nationalism. 
us, I will use this, this map. The Kurds are ethnic people. They differ from the Arabs, from the Turks, from the Persians. They have their own geographic area and were promised during the First World War that they will have a state of their own. They are located in this part of, of the Middle East. Southeast Turkey, northern part of, of Iraq, the western part of, of Iran, and the northeast part of Syria. Their numbers about maybe 40, 50 million people divided among these areas. And they were denied a state of their own. Just to give you an example, in terms of Iraq, Iraq gained its independence officially in 1932 when Iraq entered the League of Nations. The League of Nations, Nations uh, is, is the prior to the United Nations. Iraq officially, and was the first Arab country, even before Egypt, was admitted to the League of, of, of Nations in 1932. Since that date, that year, the Kurds always revolted against the central government in Baghdad. At that time, they did not say that we want independence, we want more rights, our language, but basically, they were revolting for more rights as well as maybe eventually independent. And more or less, the same family which took the leadership at that time, his name was Mullah Mustafa al-Barazani, who is the father of Mas'ud al-Barazani, who just uh, retired or, or, or you know, as the president of Iraqi Kurdistan, he was really the leader of that revolt continuously from the 30s until 1947. What happened? Not only in Iraq the Kurds were agitating for a state, but also in Iran and Turkey and Syria. What happened in 1947 in Iran, in the north West part of Iran, there is a town which is a Kurdish town, they call it uh, Mahbad. So the Kurds declared the Republic of Mahbad in 1947. With the help of the Soviet Union at that time, they were behind this idea of, of establishing a Kurdish state in that part of, of uh, Iran. But the Shah and the Iranian army were able to defeat the Kurdish. And Mullah Mustafa al-Barazani was the chief of staff of that army. When they were defeated, he withdrew back to Iraq, and then the Iraqi army was after him, and he withdrew with about four or five hundred of his followers to the Soviet Union at that time. And he stayed in the Soviet Union from around 1948 until 1959, when the Iraqi monarchy was overthrown, and a new republic started with leftist tendencies, they let him to uh, come back. So we have problems for them in, in Iraq, in Iran, and in Turkey. In Turkey, the, their numbers are large. They constitute about 15% of the population of Turkey, which is maybe close to 18, 90 million people. They were very oppressed, much more oppressed 
in Turkey uh, than Iraq or Iran or even Syria. And even they don't eat, let them speak their own language. Just until recently, maybe about 10 years ago, they started having uh, their language taught in school or even have their own TV or radio programs. And their revolt and protest simmered all along until about maybe 30 years ago. They really had an armed uh, revolt led by a party they called PKK. I don't know if you uh, hear about it in the, in the, in the uh, news, I think, because they are really, they considered a terrorist organization. And, and uh, they constantly are, are uh, battling the Turkish army now. In Syria, and of course they, are, they were oppressed. In Syria, the same thing, oppressed. And they never had a chance until what happened in Syria in 2011 and, 2011 and 2012, where the people revolted and the Kurds were with them. Now, they are more or less in control of a segment close to the Iraq, Turkey, and northeast part of Syria. The, in, the difference what happened now in Syria prior is the United States is behind them and supporting them. Even they have soldiers uh, stationed in that area. <clears throat> So this is really one of the unintended consequences of the 2003 war. How is this problem going to be solved? Today through nobody knows. Nobody knows. Neither in Turkey, nor Iraq, nor Syria. In Iran, it is much more quieter than the other three states where they live. As you know, in Iraq, when the first Gulf War finished in 1991, the U.S. and its allies, France and, and, and uh, Britain, established a no-fly zone in the northern part of Iraq, basically to protect the Kurds from Saddam Hussein because about a million and a half Kurds fled to Iran and Turkey at the end of that war. They were scared that Saddam Hussein will, will hit them with chemical weapons. So the U.S. came and protected them until two or three. They established their own system of government and they took, I think, 17 or 15 percent of the oil revenues that Iraq used to sell through the United Nations, and they gave it to them direct. So from 1992-93, the Kurds more or less established their own system in, in the Kurdish area, and that they, they control. How this is going to be dealt with between them and the central government is still not clear. About two years ago, they had a, a, a referendum on independence. And uh, a referendum was pushed by their own government, the Kurdish government in these parts, against the advice of the United States, Turkey, Iran, the Iraqi central government, because if the Kurds establish a state in the northern part of Iraq, it will more or less affect all these countries. And this integrating that area, especially Turkey, which is still a NATO member, was very dangerous, they thought. So really nothing came out of that uh, referendum. It was a setback to the leadership of, of Barazani. And the area is still flux now between the 
central government and, and the Kurds. In, in Turkey, we have the PKK uh, in a constant revolt, you know, killing and, and, uh, and, and uh, terrorist activities. In Syria, they were able, with the help of the PKK, to establish an army which is being trained by the U.S. now, although the U.S. Although the U.S. accuses the PKK, or they have it as a terrorist organization, but they still, they help them for other reasons, you know. So we really have, we have a very complicated situation because many actors are there, many, many players are, have their own interests. Turkey is very much involved because they are really afraid that Turkey will disintegrate, you know. Syria, the same thing, Iraq and Iran. So here is the Kurdish situation, and they, they will come and think tanks in Washington, universities, but really nobody knows how events will develop and will proceed. Now, the second unintended consequences of uh, the 2003 war, the rise of Shia Islam, the Arab Shia Islam in Iraq and beyond. The Shia are the, sec the, the second sect in Islam. You have the Sunnis and the Shia. The Shias are located mainly in Iran, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Bahrain, and in Saudi Arabia. Maybe in Saudi Arabia you have about 10% less more. I don't think they, they know exactly uh, uh, the number, but they are there. What's unique about this, and even some Arabs don't know it, the Shia did not rule any state in the Arab world since about 800 or 900 years ago. The famous Al-Azhar University, which I am sure all of you are aware of, is or was a Shia institution. The empire at that time, or the kingdom at that time, was the Fatimid, the Fatimid. And they lasted about 200 years in northern Africa, in Egypt, and in other parts of North Africa, and even in some parts of, of uh, Palestine and Syria. So they really, since that time, there was no Shia majority in any country of the Arab East or North Africa who are rulers of that state until, until two or three. This is a, a tremendous earthquake in, the, in, the, in what happened in two or three, the rise of Shia, Arab Shia Islam. Uh, Persia or, or Iran, the majority of them, maybe about 85% or 90% are Shia, but they are not Arabs. Are Persians. So the, the Iraq is, is about 60% Arab Shia. The Arab Shia in, in, in Iraq, this is a tremendous, you know, uh, uh, tremendous power they, they were able to, to uh, control uh, the country. Why Iraq is different than any other? country in the Middle East. And personally, personally, I think what you see now, or this struggle is going, is for who controls Iraq. And why I, I say that? Because Iraq is about, in terms of population, maybe about 30 or 35 million people. But more important than that, 
the people are very resources. You know, they have energy, hard working, they have oil, they have water, they have the potential is really big. And in terms of oil reserve, either they compete for the first place with Saudi Arabia or they are the second country that has reserve of oil. So where Iraq goes, it will have a change or impact on the Middle East beyond, you know. As you see now, as you see now, Iraq is, if it allies itself more with Iran, it will, it will have an impact, you know, that they haven't seen for many years. If it stays neutral, it will make an impact. If it allies with the Arab states against Iran, as it did in, in, during the first uh, <coughs> war between Iraq and Iran in 1980, so really the fight in, 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 in the Middle East now on who controls Iraq and how this will uh, move. Of course, each one of these items that I am suggesting, they have soft items, you know. Just to give you, I'm sure most of you were very, very young in, in two or three, but at least the older Pat maybe remembers. Who wanted to make the change against the Hussein? Basically, the U.S. Practically, all Arab countries, all Arab countries, who have been ally or clients of the United States, stood against this. None of the Arab states, from Egypt. To Jordan, to Syria, to Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states, with the exception of Kuwait, were very much against the change of Saddam Hussein because they knew, and maybe they knew it better than the policymakers in Washington, that if changes occur in Iraq, the Shia Arab would be in power, and this would impact them. Let me break this by an incident that I was involved in. It was the year 2008, and we were in, in uh, I was in an official delegation with the current Prime Minister, Adil Abdel Mahdi, visiting Kuwait. And I don't have to tell you, the regime of Saddam Hussein was very, very oppressive. Very oppressive. Killed, you know, thousands of people. And really, on top of it, Kuwait was the victim of Saddam Hussein when he invaded it in, in uh, 1990. So their emir was sitting there complaining to the vice president of Iraq at that time, and I was sitting next to him. Well, I, he, he kept complaining for about 15 minutes. What Saddam did for us, he killed us. I get By the way, Kuwait for, for since 1980, between 1980 to 90, was really a big supporters of, supporter of Saddam Hussein in terms of money, finance, you know, whatever. And he was complaining of that. It's killed us, is it? And the vice president was very polite. He said something, but I told him, your, your highness, you have experienced Saddam Hussein eight months long. We know him for 30 years. <laughs> right. And he got the message. <laughs> he really got the message. Anyway. Now, the rise of 
the Arab Shia and the Arab East and beyond is really will have an impact that nobody you know, contemplated. Nobody contemplated them. And I'm sure you, 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 just yesterday, there is no doubt Iran has influence on the Iraqi government now. The U.S. has influence on the Iraqi government now. And there is a struggle. But I go back to the, to the opposition of the Arab state against the changes that the United States wanted to bring to the area through the overthrow of Saddam Hussein because the Arab states knew that a Shia government will, will, will govern Iraq later on and they were, they were not happy with that. How this is going to play, and of course, when the U.S. Army came into Baghdad and Iraq in 2003, a campaign against it was launched. Basically, basically, started with the majority of the people who opposed it were the Sunnis of Iraq. And there were some Shia with them, but the majority were the Sunnis of Iraq who constitute about 17% of the population, but have been governing Iraq since Iraq it, uh, got its independence in 1932. Uh, so the Iraqi elite from that time until Saddam Hussein was overthrown were controlled by the Sunni Arabs of Iraq. What happened now? They lost power, and some of them were, you know, very upset about it, so they started resisting the United States Army who really brought this, this change. How this is going to play now, again, nobody knows. Nobody knows. What did the Arab state do between 2004 until recently, and maybe they still, they financed, they financed this campaign of bombing and stuff through their own, own uh, methods and through their own connections. And don't forget, this is a very important thing, the majority of the tribes, the Arabic tribes in Iraq are the same tribes, are the same tribes that are in Saudi Arabia especially, in Jordan and Syria. Shammah, and as a matter of fact, their leadership have been in Iraq since, you know, the 30s and 40s until the United States really put pressure on them and the political situation changes and we really don't know how this is going to play out. The, the other unintended consequences, what I call the disintegration of the Arab political system. Most of the Arab countries gained its independence in 19, after First World War, in the, in the 20s, as they were part of the mandate system. The League of Nations put a system they controlled through Britain and France. They call it the mandate system. And they governed. Iraq got its independence in 1932. Egypt later, I think, 1933. Saudi Arabia and the rest. Uh, Lebanon and Syria after the Second War and so on and so forth. So that system of government in each 
Arab countries. They were part of the Arab League, and they have relationship among them. They had differences. They have struggle, but the Arab system collectively was more or less under the auspices of the Arab League. When Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1991, and this is my own analysis, really started destroying the Arab system that we know. It never happened before that an Arab army went and, and uh, invaded another country, another Arab country, and abolished it. I mean, Saddam said there is no Kuwait, and this Kuwait is part of Iraq. So I think that was the first step in the disintegration of of the Arab system that we know of. What President Bush did in 2003, he really completed that destruction. So more or less, the Arab system now is very weak. Yes, there is the Arab League, League, but it really is not as strong or as powerful as it used to be. Doctor, can I jump in and ask you a quick question? Sure. Um, staying with 2003, but you talked about the Kuwait crisis. Yes. Um, when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, um, the world imposed the sanctions. Yes. Uh, before the sanction, before 2003, 90, 95% of Iraqi children were, were educated. Yes? I mean, they, they were, it was the, a very... The educational system in Iraq was really one of the best in the Middle East. It was the modern educational system was established by the British in the 20s, but the people who governed Iraq at that time were very enlightened, and they really established a very progressive modern system, both males and females, and this really uh, uh, continued and believe it or not, the first Iraqi uh, uh, scholarship started in 1926. 1926, Iraq started sending students to study abroad. And in the 30s, I have a cousin who graduated from the University of California in 1933. <laughs> And it accelerated after the Second World War. In the 50s, it was really, you know, both to the UK and to the United States. And really, those people who went and came back really built the modern system of Iraq, not only in education, but as a system of government, you know. And it continued this scholarship program until the 70s. When Saddam Hussein came, he started giving the scholarships to the people who supports him, rather than based on the merits. Yeah. Let me bring the last point that I want to make, and then we can discuss most issue, keep this in mind because I think this is very important. Most issues in the Middle East now, and even previously, are linked with each other. Are linked with each other. What I mean by that is that they wanted to solve the, the Palestinian problem in the Bahrain conference, the the soft the, uh, yeah. yeah, deal of the century. But this can, they cannot be cannot be isolated from what's going on in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen. Everything is linked. Everything is linked. So whatever they come, they want to 
manipulate the system. Let us solve this and then we'll get, get back. No. Nowadays, now one of the reasons they say the U.S. did not retaliate against the downing of its throne in, in the Persian Gulf about a month ago because maybe, maybe a bigger war will start from Lebanon, Syria, and Israel to Yemen, to Iraq, to Persia, to, to the Gulf area. So everything is linked. Keep that in mind. Thank you very much. I hope you, you uh, <laughs> wow. gain something from my, from my uh, talk. And I am ready to answer any questions that you have. Go ahead. Don't be shy. It's all right. So given that you, what, what you just stated about the interconnectedness of all the conflicts, yes. what's the best strategy, in your opinion, for dealing with the multiple different areas of trouble in the region? Say, like, the Syrian Civil War and the Yemeni Civil War and then um, Israel-Palestine. Like, how, how, if they're all connected, are you like what's the strategy like what do we do to make by the u.s or by the era well, um, from the united states as you know policies in the united states they don't come out of you know nowhere there are people who are pushing for certain policies there are lobbyists there are this and that but from my perspective i think the best thing that could happen to the area and as well as to the united states is to have an international conference to deal with all these problems. You can have the Israeli-Palestinian problem, the Yemeni problem, uh, the Syrian problem, and invite the countries that makes a difference in that particular thing. Is this going to happen? I really doubt it. Because again, very powerful forces, even now look at the uh, President Trump administration. I personally don't think he wants to get involved in more wars in the Middle East because the Iraqi war has been going on for the past 13 years, of 16 years. The, the Afghani war, Afghanistan's war, is, is 19 years. And, and the U.S. spent billions and trillions of dollars. I mean, in Iraq, I don't know if you know the casualty, U.S. lost about 4,600, 700 uh, people, and what is the result? And and really, keep in mind, I was in Baghdad during that period from 2004 until 16. Around 2007, for one reason or another, the U.S. almost lost that war. And do you know how many people were fighting against it? All those terrorists or I then died, believe me, they did not exceed more than 15 to 20,000. The surge, you know, Petraeus made the surge and brought more troops and they changed their strategy until they were able to, you know, overcome it and stabilize the government more or less. So the U.S., yes, it's so powerful in technology and bombs. They can, you know, have their B-52s. But in reality, on the ground, it is almost impossible for them not to win a battle, but to win the war, you know. So the best thing is to do for the U.S. and Western allies, as well as Russia and the rest, is to have an international uh, conference, everybody is invited, and they try to, to solve their problem. Not problem, problems of the Middle East. Um, so you mentioned that the, the, one of the unintended consequences was the disintegration of the like, Arab political system, as like, previously, and you said it started in, with the invasion of Kuwait. But uh, based off of what we've heard from like other events we went to, like, like 13 of the GCC nations like voted to protect Kuwait and voted to maintain Kuwait's independence. And so would you not argue that 
that is an example of those institutions actually working in favor of protecting the status quo? Well, the, the status quo is being protected by the people who are benefiting by it. Who are the people who are benefiting by it? The small, I mean, the small elites of, of these countries, you know, backed by more or less Western powers. And this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but maybe it's other country. Or Bahrain is a country. I, I don't want to say about no. others, you know. <laughs> but there is a gentleman, UAE, UAE, <laughs> Give me a break. Let me tell you, and this is not from Zuhair Hamadi. There is a gentleman, very distinguished professor in Kuwait. His name Abdullah Nafisi. I don't know if you have heard him. If you haven't, go and see him. But I heard a lecture he gave to Kuwaitis. And somebody recorded it and, and, and released it to the press. He was advising the Kuwaitis that in 15 to 20 years, he said, you will not see Kuwait or Qatar or, or, or Bahrain. Because the situation is, is, is changing. It's really changing. That's what I say about all these issues that I raised, nobody knows the outcome of it. We are in a, in a flux now. We really don't, nobody knows. Is Kuwait going to stay like it is now? Is, is Qatar, Bahrain, or even Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, yeah. So here we are, all of them are, 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 even Iraq, I mean, Iraq, Iraq could be divided to a Kurdish state or an Arabic, Arab state. And maybe even the Arabs are divided among, you know, uh, Sunnis and Shiites could be, you know, uh, divided into three parts. And the same thing applies to even Turkey, to Iran. All these countries have minorities. Some of them are big, some are small, but all of them, they share the same thing. The best system is a democratic system with everybody, but it is not easy to, 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 to be there. And not only it's easy, and many, many countries, including some Western countries, they don't even want it. They don't even want an, a democratic system in that part of the world. Do you think a system in Saudi Arabia will buy $400 billion worth of, of weapons from, from Trump or the US? I mean, $400 billion, do you know what he can do uh, with that money in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> so they don't even want when you hear you know, democratization of the Arab years, you know, take it with a grain of salt. They really they really not necessarily believe in what they are saying. By the way, I am very frank. I would like to be direct. I appreciate that. Can I, can I ask you? I'm sorry. Sure. This is, uh, I'll, I'll be quiet after this. Okay, so you were faced with the situation in 2003. Before, before the invasion in 03, 92% of your kids were literate, educated. After that, um, you had a significant only one in six kids had access to textbooks. Yeah. What you were asked to stand up and 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 make these Herculean reforms and 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 changes and and to keep a system of of students not only in school but higher education universities. Uh, you had assassinations on on faculty. The highest rate of assassinations in the world on the educators, on the elites that were what, how, how, what, where, to start? Yeah. How? <laughs> how what? What? What were you 
were you certain that you could do this? Were you uncertain? What was, what was going through your mind at the time? Well, you take it by stages. That these years at the beginning, after two or three, really it was a, it was a, a civil war. So you are really not thinking of of uh, of uh, you just want to win the civil war. You want to defeat the uh, the terrorists or whatever they are, you know? So that was the first task. Then you try to build, you know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, and the mis a lot of mistakes were <clears throat> made by the United States in Iraq. And a lot of mistakes were made by the leaders who came to power in Iraq after two or three that got us into the situation now. Really, the Iraqi bureaucracy or the Iraqi system of government in terms of administration disintegrated. We really, we have the title and the ministries, but everything is dysfunctional now. Personally, when I went, I tried my best, and maybe the best thing I have done in Iraq and in my life is to establish uh, a scholarship program with the office of the prime minister rather than with the ministry of higher education. And we were able to send about, we awarded 4,200 scholarship total funded by the Iraqi government not by the US or anybody. Excuse me. I think that scholarships from the Minister of Higher Education is based only on Iraqi employees in the government. Yeah. Uh, this, this, is a, yeah this is a point that uh, uh, later on came out. Iraq, as I said, used to send students from their 20s but it accelerated in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And the scholarships used to be open for employees of the government or just students. Later on, at the, at the Saddam Hussein really switched it to based on loyalty rather than on merit. And then the Ministry of Higher Education uh, reduced the scholarship to only the Ministry of Higher Education. So it was reduced even only to the, basically to the ministries, uh, to the Ministry of Higher Education. I established a program, as I said, first of all, based on merit. I can say without any hesitation that out of the 4,200 scholarships that were awarded, not even one, not even one, was awarded through pressure, through corruption, through sectarianism, through nationality. I did not give because they are Arabs or they're Shia or Krishna, based on merits. On top of it, whatever we used to get a year, 500 scholarship or a thousand, I divided it among each of Iraqi provinces based on the population. And the competition was based only among the students of that state or that government. Let me tell you, this is really, always I mentioned this incident that happened, which I still value. Our system was very similar to how students apply to universities here. Everything is on the internet, which was really known into Iraq. All the documents used to be sent uh, through the internet. And when the selection process starts, they will call the highest of the students to bring them for a personal interview. 
and there was only five out of 100 for the personal entry, based, you know, on certain criteria. So we found out there is a, a, a female student was the best in her class, you know, bachelor degree, high school, whatever. So of course, we asked her to come to the interview. When she came, she was on a wheelchair. And the Iraqi law, which has been there for a long time, they don't give scholarship to, to people unless they are physically fit or mentally fit. <laughs> And the, and, the, and the student came with her father, I remember she said, from Babel. And she was very upset. She knew that you're going to see her handicap and she's not going to get the scholarship. So I brought the legal person who's in charge of these things. I said, look, I really want to give this girl a scholarship. He said, look, how can we how can we give it where the law is very very clear? You have she has to, anybody has to be physically fit as well as mentally fit. So I said, okay. So I, I summarized her case and I took a personal I had a personal interview with the Prime Minister to get her the okay. And he signed it. And she came to the state, she finished a master's degree in computer engineering and went back she's teaching now. I mean that story is really you know beautiful beautiful that touched me you know when I told her that I was able to get her the approval from the Prime Minister I swear to God she cried so much she and her father <laughs> so we have done some you know good things but it's not enough I mean what's four thousand I really wanted it to, to be maybe 50,000, 70,000. If you look at all countries in the world, especially the one that developed in the past 50 years, most of them, or all of them, send students abroad. I don't know if you know or not. Do you know how many Chinese students study in the United States every year? Do you know? The number, 195,000. Do you know how many Indian students? 165. There is basically a million international student studies in the United States every year. And this is according to the Institute of International Education, which is only about two, three blocks from here. Malaysia, South uh, Korea, India, you know, all Turkey, Iran. Iran in the 70s had about 30, 35,000 students. Even the negotiator of the nuclear deal with Kerry was an Iranian uh, educated. educated MIT, including their foreign minister now. You see him. Tonight, maybe you'll see him on CNN. He was educating me. So this is really a, you know, prerequisites that, that should be done by these countries. Got to send people. Hopefully, they will come back. Most of them, they do if there are opportunities, and they build their institutions and they build their, their system. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that Kurdish nationalism was something that rose with the uh, war in 2003. And I was wondering, considering the legitimate aspirations that they've expressed, I mean, not just from 2003, but throughout history, should the United States and other actors be involved in constructing a legitimate nation or state for different Kurdish groups, or should Kurdish groups just aspire to be more integrated into the governance structures of the parent states, so to speak? It's a, it's a good question. What should the U.S.? The U.S. does not, as once Kissinger said, 
they are not in the business of being missionaries. They are not in the business of being missionaries. So the U.S. has to wait its interest. Until now, they are very much and has been against the creation of a, a, a Kurdish state. The only period that they helped the Kurds was in 1991, after the defeat of Saddam Hussein and kicking him out of Kuwait. They gave the protection to what we see in Iraq, the, the, the Kurdish government uh, there. And now, more or less, they are being supportive of the Syrian Kurds. But of course, the Syrian Kurds are being supported by the PKK of Turkey. And Erdogan has been very, very adamant in standing against, you know, uh, uh, the creation of even a federal, you know, system in Syria, or because they think it will go back and haunt him in Turkey, because the Kurds are living in these four states. How this is going to happen, it depends on a lot of factors. Really, it depends. Domestic politics here, international politics, how does the U.S. see its interest in the Middle East via, via the Kurds? But your advice is don't do it in isolation. You see, uh, the Kurds, they really have a problem because they are scattered in four powerful countries, especially Iran and Turkey. And both these countries, as well as Iraq to a lesser extent, are very adamant against the establishment of a Kurdish state because it will take from their territory, it will weaken them. Let me mention this story. What happened in 1946-47? This is very interesting. See how, how big countries use their affair. If you recall at the beginning, I said the Kurds established a republic. They call it the Mahbad Republic in 1946-47 in the northwest part of uh, Iran with the help of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, because of the Second World War, they occupied northern Iran. And the Allied, France and Britain, occupied southern Iran. Why did they do that? Because the father of the Shah, who was overthrown in 1979, refused. He said, I am neutral in the Second World War. I don't want to be with the Allied or with Germany and Italy. I, I want to be neutral. Did, this did not suit the Allied. The Soviet Union at that time desperately needed support, especially weapons and ammunition tanks, airplanes from Western countries. So they decided the best route to the Soviet Union is through Basra, Abadan, because there is a railway and highways to the Soviet Union. So when the father of the Shah refused, you see from here, So when the father of the Shah refused, they overthrew him. They overthrew him, sent him to South Africa, and brought his son to be the king. So when the war finished in 1945, 46, 45 finished, the Soviets did not want to withdraw from northern Iran. 
it was the beginning of the Cold War, you know. And the U.S. and Great Britain pressured Russia or the Soviet Union to withdraw. They were not able to until a prime minister. What did the Soviets want? The Soviet wants part of the oil. See, they really wanted part of the oil concessions to give them oil concessions in the, in the Persian Gulf. And of course, the U.S. and Britain did not want them to be there or to give them concessions. So a prime minister, and a Persian prime minister came, and his name was Awami Sultana, very smart guy. He told the Shah, look, I have a, a way of getting the Soviets out. He said, how are you going to get them? The U.S. And, and Britain cannot get them out. He said, look, trust me, and this is my plan. So the Shah told him, OK, take a delegation and go and negotiate with Stalin, which he did. What did he offer Stalin? By the way, these stories very, <laughs> very few people even read in the, in the books, you know. What he did, he went and met Stalin, and he said, look, what do you want to withdraw from our country? He said, I want oil concession. He said, okay, we will give you an oil concession in one of the, of the southern parts of, of Iran where the oil is. But of course, we are a sovereign country. We have a parliament. The parliament has to agree to the oil concession, as we do with the oil concessions of Western powers, Britain and the United States. So they signed the documents. And within three months, the Soviets withdrew from northern Iran. After they withdrew, The agreement was given to the parliament, and the parliament rejected it. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> and they couldn't invade again, you know, uh, uh, Persia. He, he is considered the only person who fooled the Stalin. <laughs> really? The only person who fooled the Stalin. Well, thank you very much for... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.